Kia ora, my name is Mark Easterbrook and you're listening to Going West Audio. For your enjoyment, education and inspiration, we've opened up our archives, queued up the tapes and unearthed the best oratory, discussion and performance from 25 years of the Going West Writers' Festival. In this episode, from 2016, historian Barbara Brooks joins Judith Bringle to share the background to a history of New Zealand women, her groundbreaking book telling a New Zealand history that has been long overlooked. Kiritato, everybody. Welcome. What a delightful morning. Thank you so much for coming. We're here to have an interesting conversation about this big history. Talking to Barbara Brooks, as you know. And um, this heavy, amazing work um, is 500 pages from, from the early 1800s and speaks of the arrival of the Pākehā colonisers to the Tangata Whenua right up to 2016, which is very recent. Interesting enough, it's not only a big history, but it's an intimate history. And most significantly, when I was reading it, it speaks to me of um, particularly looking at the history of Māori and Pākehā women together, which I think brings, you know, a wonderful um, lens to looking at um, our experiences here in New Zealand, Aotearoa. Now, we'll get more into that later. So I'm not a student of history. In fact, um, I, I stopped when I was 15 because, like, Many of our choices, I didn't like the teacher of the next year. So <laughs> I learned a lot reading this work. And I was of an era as well where we learned British history. And that may relate to some of you in the audience as well. But like others have commented, Barbara, sorry, this chair is not best. Um, I saw my life <laughs> reflected out in some of the latter chapters, of course, which is um, quite an interesting experience. So I have a, a much greater sense of where I come from in a, in a collective sense, I, part of women's whakapapa in this country. And so I think we, we might all get a sense of that, I hope, this morning. So I, Barbara and I share somewhat of a, a shared um, background to, to some extent. We're um, both Pākehā women. We're at the University of Auckland about the same time. Otago. Beg your pardon, Otago <laughs> at the same time. I haven't, I haven't transported myself <laughs> um, in the 1980s. And we have been influenced by feminist influences as well. So what I want to do this morning as part of our conversation, Barbara will get to speak shortly, <laughs> is to share that intimate history with everyone in the room this morning. So Barbara, thank you so much for your offering. Um, my first question, of course, is the obvious one, starting at the beginning of why you did this work. Um, and what, what were you sort of aiming to contribute? Well, I, I remember when I first thought it would be great to write a survey, History of Women in New Zealand, we had an American visitor to the history department who said, oh, God, how terrible to write a textbook. So I felt immediately crushed in my ambition. Um, but when I was uh, an undergraduate in 1976, and it's a great pleasure for me that Lynn Milne is here, who was a fellow classmate 
at that time. I worked on abortion uh, in the 1930s, and uh, that seemed to be a very current topic to me, and I was really interested that the government had had an inquiry into abortion in the 1930s, because we were all debating abortion in the 1970s. And as part of my research, I went to visit Elsie Locke, who many of you will remember, is a great New Zealand writer, in her little house in Cambridge Terrace, absolutely stuffed with books. And she was one of the founders of what was then called the Sex Hygiene and Birth Regulation Society uh, in 1936. And when they advertised their society in the paper, they got it wrong and they put the Sex Hygiene and Girth Regulation Society. <laughs> Um, so, it was just fantastic for me talking to her about why they thought they needed a birth control organisation in 1936, because I was on the pill. Uh, I had not experienced that kind of anxiety they had from month to month about being pregnant and what it would mean to have another mouth to feed and the difficulty of getting information about birth control because doctors didn't provide it. So they wanted to start an organisation. So, so I said, well, did you know people who had abortions? And she said, yes. You know, I thought of abortion as something that happened in a hospital. Mm. And uh, she said, oh, no, we did them ourselves. And if you go and talk to so-and-so in Wellington, she'll tell you about that. So I went and visited so-and-so in Wellington, who was another founder of the Sex Hygiene and Birth Regulation Society. And so for that, you know, I, I discovered there was this whole hidden history out there that I'd never mm. read about mm. and that I wanted to pursue. And so that's been my life's work, really. Mm. Um, and so when I thought about writing this book... Uh, which was a long time ago, so it's been a very long process. Um, I had those kind of intimate questions in mind and also really wanting to pay attention to women's reproductive labour. So much of New Zealand history is written in terms of wars, and we hear about wars continually at the moment. Mm. Um, but what about all the women who died in childbirth? which they regularly did in the 19th century. And what did it mean to be the mother of eight children or ten children? And what did it mean for Māori mothers to lose all their children in the 19th century with disease imported by the Europeans? So those are the kind of uh, themes that I was really interested in. But I also wanted to sort of address the larger turning points in New Zealand history through the, through the lens of women and think about what did it mean to be on a farm? Here you see these two. Um, not called farmers, but they clearly were. Um, you know, what did it mean uh, when transport changed? What did it mean when educational opportunities became available? So those are the kind of questions I've tried to explore from the women's point of view. Mm. Maybe if, if we go back just a little bit too, I mean, why did you get into feminist women's history? I mean, what was going on in your life to, at that point? Uh, well, I, it, was really that, it was really that research that led me to feminism, mm -hmm. actually. So there was a you know, very lively Dunedin Collective for Women who all seemed to be very cool people 
much cooler than me, and I couldn't be a group, part of that group because I wasn't cool enough. Um, so it really was the history that sort of made me see the world in a different way. And I was very well mentored. I had um, people who encouraged me to go to the States to pursue my interest in women's history. Uh, and I went to an all-women's college, Bryn Mawr in Philadelphia. Um, and I had a slight segue into French history. And then I went back to work on abortion in Britain and went to England to do that research and was part of a really lively feminist history group with people from all different institutions. And there I met Charlotte MacDonald, who's now a professor of history at Victoria, who was part of that group as well. And, you know, we used to meet in a some dreary meeting rooms at Grayson Road, and then we would go to a pub. And this is 1981, mm -hmm. and, you know, there was still quite a hostility about a group of women sitting down in a pub to discuss feminist things in mm -hmm. London in 1981. Mm -hmm. And we used to kind of do it quite deliberately to... Uh, Change the atmosphere. To provoke. To perhaps. provoke, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Okay. So, as I said, I'm a Luddite when it comes to history. And on the back cover it says this is a narrative history. So what does that mean? <laughs> oh, well, actually I always joke with my partner that he loves great narrative history and I'm never going to write one, but it's been described that way. <laughs> Um, and I suppose it's a narrative history because it takes in a large sweep of time and it places it in a chron chronological uh, aspect. But I, I suppose I, I've, I feel that phrase um, leaves out the analysis going on. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I think at the heart of my uh, analysis, and the thing that kept me really interested, and it was the hardest thing about writing the book, was trying to think about the lives of Māori women as well. And, um, you know, how, how does it mean to be, have your country taken from you and your rights diminished by a British legal system that prioritised the husband? Mm -hmm. And how did it, as I said, feel to lose so many of your kin through introduced diseases and through dispossession of land? So by 1890, there's only 40,000 Māori left. Mm. Uh, how, do, how do you rebuild your culture mm. when it's mm. been lost? So I pay attention to people like Fina Cooper and Tupuia Hirangi. Mm. Uh, Tupuia, you know, a fantastic politician and mm. thinking about rebuilding culture mm. uh, through culture groups, through re-establishing uh, the marae, making mm. it a centre, uh, and, and working very hard with politicians as mm. well. Um, so those are the kind of questions that kept me um, working hard. And here, you know, here we see these lovely Pacific Island women. Mm. And you know, what does it mean in the later decades when we be become a much more multicultural society? And what does it mean to be a mother of a daughter who sees new opportunities in New Zealand, but it also means losing culture? And here they're mm. at the Pacific Island Church, which holds on to culture. And you see the mothers in the background in the darker dress. Um, and, the, and the anticipation and joy of the young women about life ahead of them. And I think it's a lovely image about that migrant experience. Mm. 
Maybe maybe you'd talk to us a little little more about the the early part of your book and, mm -hmm. and that incredible shock that must have been for Maori women to really have a very different kind of paradigm about the place of women suddenly mm. foisted on them. Mm. I mean, it, it seemed to me reading it that, that Maori women were trying to sort of... They'd been unrelenting, actually, right through the recorded time that you have to, to hold on to the, the rights that they had mm. um, in Maori society. And then in contrast, we have the, the Pākehā women starting to come in and then having to fight out of the shadows of patriarchy, really, mm. to try and get some very basic rights. Can you mm. kind of talk mm. about that, mm. that conflict a bit more? Well, it's, there's been some wonderful work done, and I have to say, you know, my book builds on the wonderful work of many other people um, on the first uh, missionary experience. And, you know, for the, the missionary wives, their prime driving force really was, you know, they felt they were God-driven to convert the heathen and the way to... Um, convert Māori women was really to teach them domestic skills. And there's so much resistance in Māori communities. You know, Māori women come and take their daughters away. We didn't send our daughters to you to be slaves. You know, they mm. cannot comprehend that kind of uh, expectation mm. of women. Um, and there's a lovely... Um, Seen in you know which one of the male missionaries tells a, a chief you've got to put a, you can't have two wives you've got to put one away and he looks at the missionary and says well maybe you can choose which one it should be <laughs> you know and then they ask you know well your men they seem to be you know these men off the ships, the sailors, they seem to have many wives. <laughs> so, you know, it's a continual dialogue about social uh, different norms. And I think um, there are fascinating, you know, a great reflection back on Pākehā society because uh, Māori find European attitudes towards children to be extremely harsh. And they say, why do you hit a child? You know, why, why mm. would you do that? Uh, so there's sort of, mm. uh, it, it makes, and we know, of course, some missionaries went, went native because mm. they found the attraction of Māori society um, mm. compelling. Mm. Mm. In, in, um, we will have questions, by the way, near the end, so you can get ready, um, because there's so much to talk about in this book. <laughs> Um, there's a section you call marriage property and destitution um, in terms of these shifting shifting rights. And then what I became interested in too is these population shifts that you've, you've alluded to mm. in terms of the in incredible you know, decimation of Māori. Um, and, I mean, initially what, what we had is, you know, Māori with just a few Pākehā. Yeah. And then over, progressively over time we see... Maori population um, yes, decrease for a variety of reasons, which I'll get you to talk about, and and then the the sort of emphasis on Pākehā women to produce to actually almost shift that population dimension, um, a sort of mm. democratic imperative almost. Mm. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, it's really um, here's a Whanganui photograph of women mm. and children, which I think is a lovely 
photograph. Um, the Māori population, of course, didn't have immunity to all the diseases brought, including influenza, measles, chickenpox, uh, brought by mm. Pākehā. So they're wiped out by those diseases. Mm. They're also wiped out by dispossession. So the kind of practices that Māori had to uh, keep their communities healthy, the separation of waste mm. uh, from mm. eating, uh, Māori never... Um, they always cooked in separate uh, place from where they lived. So um, they were broken down by the European incursion, and so disease became much more rampant. And then ironically, you know, you get New Zealand public health officials trying to educate them in Pākehā ways. Um, but I think we have to recognise the labour of Māori women in the recovery of the population. So it's, it's, it takes off... Uh, they start, um, Māori communities are recovering. There's signs of it in the 1890s, um, and it's secure really by the 1910s. Mm. Um, and they have very large families. At the same time, Pākehā birth rates are declining. Uh, so 1860s families, often 8 to 10 children. By the 1930s, Pākehā families are around 2 children. So there's great concern about what is called at the time race suicide, i.e. the white race. Mm. Um, and so we have these two very different demographic histories. And that decline in the Pākehā birth rate, I always ask my students how it was done, and some of them say, oh, the pill, you know, shows how good their, <laughs> their history is. <laughs> but, but it's to do with things um, like the introduction of child labour laws in the eight, um, 1870s, uh, advent of compulsory education, so children become a liability rather than an asset. You can't have your children working on the farm because they've got to go to school. Um, so... Pākehā being much more uh, careful about family size, and probably being careful was what they were doing, coitus interruptus. Um, I'm from Dunedin, and one of the expressions from coitus interruptus was, you know, coming up from in the cargo to Dunedin, you get off at Gore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> so um, and, you know, abstinence probably played a role as well. Um, but uh, certainly mechanical, what were known as mechanical methods of birth control were frowned upon in polite society. But something very significant was going on to underpin mm. that Pākehā decline in the birth rate. And, you know, organisations like Plunkett mm. from 1909 are out there trying to encourage women to have babies. Mm. Mm. And a lot of women's time and effort is, mm. is put into that. But, there's, you know, race suicide is a big theme. It's a kind of international theme amongst white cultures mm. in, in reaction to that decline mm. in the birth rate. Mm. I'm, I'm aware time's flipping around. Oh, Let's yeah. flip to the interwar years, shall we? Um, just <laughs> madly. I mean, again, we hear much about the depression and the economics of that yeah. time. So I was really intrigued. You've, you've actually got a couple of chapters there, yeah. you know, actually shining the light really on that period. And you talk about the modern woman having very different lives from their mothers. Can you kind of unpack that? Talk to us about that. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I mean, you'll know that in the introduction of the book, I talk mm. about the difference between my life and my mother. So my, my mother never had paid employment after she married and she had five children at a much younger age 
than I had my three children. Um, so it seemed like a very dramatic shift, but I think these dramatic shifts are evident in each period I look at. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think the, the war, and this is a, a poster about man, manpowering women, you know, they were uh, encouraged to go into essential occupations. And that's a really important mm -hmm. shift in that even married women become manpowered and they're supposed to work. So whereas previously, a married woman was not supposed to work, and in fact, teachers got dismissed once they got married. Uh, the war breaks down that mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, prohibition on married women working. Can I tell a story about yes, the land girl? Oh, so oh, um, I, I drew on uh, Diane Barsley's book on the land girls, and she's got a wonderful story about Juliet Peter, who... Um, Grew up in Fendleton in Christchurch, very privileged family, never had to make a bed, and she gets manpowered or volunteers for the Women's Land Service, and she gets sent to a farm in Canterbury, and she adores it. She just loves driving the tractor and, you know, being out in the field. So she she sows a field with, I think it's rape. Is rape yellow? Or? Yes, yeah. it's rape seed. And it yeah. says, lonely land girls here. So all the men flying across drop messages. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, so those wartime experiences uh, empowered women in new ways, and that's where women in the civil service begin the campaign for equal pay, because uh, a lot of women are drawn into the civil service, they're doing the same jobs as men and paid a lot less, and they say this isn't fair, so they begin the equal pay campaign that succeeds in private, uh, public sector equal pay in 1960. Mm. Mm. There's actually one woman in particular that um, you mentioned after World War II, Helen Simpson, and she talks about the effect of the war serving to make women much more active participants, actually, in, yeah. in public life. Can you tell us about Helen? Um, what do you know? I... Uh, I can't. Okay. I can't. I can't right now. Um, yes. But, uh, yeah. but what was that, um, the influence of, you know, that, that freeing? Well, I, you know, in the post-war era, most women were expected to go home and give up their jobs mm. for men. But I think that kind of independence they'd achieved in wartime, and because the men were away, they had to handle the money. Mm. They'd had to repair the lawnmower. You know, that had to do all those things that men traditionally did. Um, I think that gave uh, that the mothers of the baby boom generation had really different expectations of what their daughters' lives would be, that mm. they could go and do these things mm. Mm. and that they should go and see the world, for example, because some women served overseas. Women were very keen mm. to serve overseas and there's... Um, um, I think I talk about Theo Mountford, who actually, um, you know, you always hear about men who forge their age so they can go and serve. Well, she forged her age so she could be sent overseas and she serves in Egypt. Mm -hmm. And she had a fantastic, you know, she went to Petra in Jordan. They went everywhere because their nurse's uniform protected them. Mm -hmm. um, they travelled with locals. Mm -hmm. So there was that great sense of empowerment and that follows through in the generation then of the daughters of the baby boom mothers mm -hmm. who go do more OE than any men do actually mm -hmm. that generation of women in the 60s mm -hmm. and 70s and uh, you saw the Air New Zealand air hostesses probably 
Yeah. Well, tell us about some of your favourite women from the book. Oh, well, Who did you discover in there? Well, I'm, I'm, um, I'm just going to... I'm sorry about Helen Simpson. I'm just having a blank. No, no, it's no, all right. I was, no. I was interested in Helen because she yeah. is quite active um, in terms of seeing it as an opportunity after the war to try and create change and, yeah. and for more women in public life. But, but tell us your favourite. Well, my mm. favourite is Mrs C. Uh, and this is the kind of woman I really wanted to honour in my history. Mrs C, the 34-year-old wife of a clerk in the public service and mother of five children, this is in the 1950s, dealt with the reality of household life rather than any ideal. Her work began at 6.15am. Her young baby was asthmatic. Her seven-year-old had contracted mm. cerebrospinal meningitis at eight months. This is before antibiotics. And she was assisted with the care of him by the Crippled Children's Society. Mrs C herself had bad varicose veins and bronchial asthma. Busy as her days were, she found time in the evenings to belong to the Kindergarten Mothers Club, a church club, the Mothers League and the Plunkett Mothers Club. Mrs C was also on the committee of the local intermediate school and involved in girl guides and brownies. And so I just want to say that, you know, we forget those lives, but they were the women building the community and building all those institutions. Mm -hmm. And many of our politicians got their training in things like play centre, the women. Mm -hmm. They went from play centre. They got, mm -hmm. they learned how to run meetings. They had a social mission and they went into politics. And the Society for Research on Women, which begins in the 60s, is another crucial mm. uh, forging ground mm. for those women's mm. careers. OK, let's just talk about change a little bit. I mean, obviously, the suffrage um, struggle is, is well documented. And, of course, it's the time. It's suffrage time at the moment. We're in September. And it, and it struck me, of course, that any change at that point, because women were disenfranchised, they had to depend on men to actually make the arguments for them. Mm. And then, of course, the, the second um, women's movement, of which, of course, we're experienced, um, women were able to find a voice to speak for themselves at that point. Yeah. So can you talk about those two different sorts of change and yeah. yeah, so mm. I think, I mean, interestingly, if you think about it, mm. there's a great link between the two waves of feminism because Kate Shepard, you know, founded the White Ribbon, mm. the mm. Women's Christian Temperance Union paper, mm. uh, and that's where women wrote about their yeah. desire for equality yeah. and they sent it to the male politicians who were interested. Mm. And here we have, you know, Sandra Coney, who mm. founded Broadsheet in 1972, mm. uh, the voice for feminist women at the time. Mm. Um, but there were, of course, women in Parliament and there were some very key um, um, moments. Uh, Fetu Terakatni Sullivan, for example, mm. first woman to give birth as a... Was she a cabinet minister? She was mm -hmm. a, in Parliament. Yes. Uh, she had to have a caesarean. She took six days off because she didn't want to be seen not to be doing her job properly. Uh, so, you know, what a courageous... Uh, and, you know, she was a pioneer in so many things, uh, mm. particularly with regard to Māori art, Māori fashion. Mm. Um, uh, so she was there in, in the 70s, and, you know, it's taken a long time. We're still, 
you know, underrepresented in Parliament, but it was really the advent of um, MMP that increased the number of women in Parliament. Because although women got the vote, I mean, thinking about the two movements, women mm. got the vote in 1893, but they couldn't stand for Parliament until 1919. That was seen as absolutely one step too far. And I've got a bit of uh, parliamentary debate in the book uh, to remind us how men felt that having women actually sitting in Parliament would be so disruptive. You know, they thought, well, if the colonial treasurer sees a pretty woman across the floor who wants, you know, so much money, he, he'll be swayed. Mm -hmm. you, know, so, you know, we forget that these arguments mm -hmm. were made in Parliament. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, you know, th things change um, by by the 70s, but here is Fetu mm -hmm. having to be very careful about her pregnancy. Ruth Richardson uh, was not able, she had a premature child, she sort of timed the child in the hope it would arrive at the, in the parliamentary interval or whatever, uh, arrived early, and the Labour woman didn't allow her a peer so she could mm. have a peer in Parliament, and that's because they opposed her politics over childcare. So, uh, you know, we, we kind of see that I wanted to mm. portray the diversity of, you know, feminists, my, you know, our generation of feminists hoped mm. that having women would mm. change the world for us. Um, it did in some ways, but there were also divisions within feminism. Mm. And, you know, do we feel pleased about Ruth Richardson's Mother of All Budgets? Probably, I don't, but, you know. Uh, but here she was, mm. a powerful woman in Parliament. Mm. Mm. I mean, I, I, one of the, the things, too, I, I was struck by, you know, you've got mountains of material that you yeah. could choose from. Yeah. And, of course, people are quick to tell you what's been left out. Yeah, you know, yeah. but, um, how do you choose? You know, how did, how, what guided you? What were the themes? Who's in and who's yeah. out? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, I'm terribly, I was terribly worried. You know, when it first came out, uh, people thought it was a kind of like a, a um, biographical dictionary of New Zealand women, so they'd be able to look up every woman in the country. <laughs> but um, what I wanted to do um, in particular was try and capture through individuals the flavour of an era. So um, I forget which chapter it is now, but so for example, uh, in one of them, I use Kath uh, Tizard oh, yes, yes. to frame mm -hmm. the chapter. Young woman, four children, married young, you know, trying to juggle everything. Um, and that's sort of representative of a particular era. Uh, so in another, so I, I looked very hard for examples not of individuals, not because they were prominent or famous, but because they told us something about an era. Um, in the 1860s, I used the story of Catherine Caron, mm. who, uh, Māori whakapapa in the north, uh, marries a Pākehā, has to go from the north where the wars are on, mm. down to the south, goes by ship to bluff, has written to her husband who's already there, he never gets the letter, she has to walk around the coast and sleep in the sandhills with her baby to get to him. And that was um, 
when I read her story, it just brought together the North and the South, mm. wars in the North, gold in the South. You mm. know, he's gone down there. It's the place of new prospects. Mm. So there's not only the kind of people you want to represent, but there's all the, also the national story um, mm. and how you get the weight of that mm. right. Yeah. One of the um, other big questions um, that I want to know about is, do you, have you developed any theories about change as you've worked through this? Because changes have heard, occurred for women at particular times in New Zealand history. And so how can we do it? You know, what are the key ingredients? Which moments? Yeah, well, I feel really interested in, in that, actually, and how um, uh, an opening up of like second wave feminism allows questioning that leads to change. So I'm particularly interested in that in relation to the health services and the Cartwright inquiry. You know, there's a particular moment where the forces align that it's possible to break open what was then a very powerful medical, mm. male medical profession mm. in New Zealand. Um, and whether we've lost that... Um, Openness now, I, I'm not sure. I mean, new forms of media make for different ways of doing that. Um, this is a change that I think is really fascinating and I want to write more about. So this is a, a pill ad from the year 2000. And it says, at least her pill is easy to stick with. <laughs> so the message of that is that no young man is worth you know, is reliable, but at least the pill is. So what does that mean? You know, the pill is introduced in 1961. It's advertised as a means of planning your family, spacing your children. It's first only available to married women. People had to share their engagement rings around waiting rooms. Um, you know, by, by the 1970s, it becomes much more readily available to young students like me. After the university council decides it's okay, um, and now uh, there's a whole lot of questions about the impact of the pill. You know, it meant that it was became hard for young women to say no. Why not? You're on the pill. Mm. You know, so earlier you could say, oh, mm. no, <laughs> you know, my parents wouldn't approve, and I don't want to get pregnant. Mm. But once the pill's available, well. Everyone's free game. So, you know, it, there are attitudinal changes mm. that it's hard to trace. And, you know, one of the um, things I've written is a, about gender and shame and how it used to be very shameful for a woman to be um, sexually active outside of marriage. And it used to be very shameful for men to fail as breadwinners, you know, when we had that whole notion of the breadwinner wage. And, and what does it mean now that these things have mm. changed and that women might be breadwinners and it might be harder for men mm. to get jobs. And so mm. what what shapes uh, mm. personal as aspiration now? Mm. Yeah. Well, I've still got questions, of course, but I think we need to open it up. Um, so this is a good time for those questions that you have. Love, hands are up already. Mm. Hello. Yes. Yes. Oh, beg your pardon. All right, the rest of you can be thinking of your questions. Very good. Is it on? I think it's now. OK, 
Okay, kia ora, fascinating. Um, I'm just thinking about uh, some of my um, Māori friends that I have in relation to current trends of fertility. Yep. Um, they would not identify as feminists because they're realigning themselves with Māori um, feminine deities. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about planned fertility, which is about reconnecting and re-establishing tohanga lines. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I've got a friend whose mother deliberately had four children to four different men in order to bring alive lines of prophecy and healing, which had been destroyed you know, due to colonisation. I've got another friend who's currently had a child to um, someone, a woman, um, who's American Indian, Native American Indian, and there's like this deliberate seeding of um, re-establishing lines through the Pacific, like Samoa, Fiji, Tahiti, and like using fertility, controlled fertility, in that way to sort of re-establish cultural connections which have been disconnected, uh, suppressed or broken, Mm -hmm. but not through the European ideology of feminism, which many of them actually really don't relate to, but it's still about empowering women, but through indigenous, um, an indigenous lens. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering if you had any response or, or comment to that. Thank you. Uh, well, I'm a I'm actually a historian, so I don't. You know, it's very interesting to know that, but it's um, uh, it's not part of. You know, I'm not a commentator on today, really. I mean, I think it's fascinating that people want to do that. Um, I guess I I feel that although it you say it's not a Pākehā notion. The idea of hereditary lines was deeply implicated in European society. And that had very negative consequences for women. So it's very nice if women can turn that around and control it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Barbara, you were asked very, very early in the session uh, what um, you saw a narrative history is, which I found fascinating, Mm. because having um, a few years back uh, done a research um, paper on um, Anthony Powell, who actually said that uh, history, um, that uh, diaries, anecdotes, gossip... Uh, all of those things were equally valid. Mm. And uh, I, I'm sorry, I haven't read your book, and I'm looking forward with great interest to reading it because I like the way you have said that you have framed certain um, issues around people who are... Yeah? Uh, uh, but all of the peop- um, the personages in your book are people. There's no... Oh, yes, it's not fiction. Oh. No, so, um, <laughs> no, and you know that Mrs. C, yes, her life is recorded by a medical student yeah. in the 1930s, yeah. uh, 1950s, who did a study of Dunedin housewives. So one of my, you know, tasks as a historian was to look for those examples of everyday life wherever I could find them. Uh, and actually, those um, preventive medicine theses have been absolutely 
astounding sources for me because they're young medical students who have privileged access to people's lives. I recount the story of a woman uh, at Ratanapa who is sitting in bed having given birth playing the ukulele. And this is observed by a medical student who recorded it. So, I mean, one of the great challenges for women's history is to find those hidden lives because we're not written down in parliamentary debates or, uh, you know. So we, we have, we've always had to be very creative. And, you know, my work on abortion was a history of crime. I used criminal records, uh, which were the sort of top, top layer where a, a written record survived underneath which was all the everyday practices. Um, so that's the challenge of doing this sort of work and I'm you know, deeply in debt to all those students over the years who've loved that challenge and who've done oral histories and gone out and tried to find out things. Mm. Yeah. Just while this slide is on, if I could just yeah. jump in, because um, your sources are, are the written word, yeah. by and large, so a lot gets lost. Yeah. Tell us about this. Quip. Well, um, I wanted the images to speak to things that I couldn't do in the text. So, for example, this is a quilt begun in England by a woman comes in the 1830s um, and finished in New Zealand. And we know that from the fabrics. And it seems to me that quilts often contain memory. People wanted bits of fabric from a sister, a mother, an aunt, and they, they acted as aid memoirs when you go to a new land. So I'm very pleased to have that image in the book. But or, or, So there's an, there is a sort of another narrative through the images which speak to things I haven't been able to address particularly in the text. Did, did you choose the images? Uh, a, it was done with Bridget Williams, who oh, has a wonderful okay. eye, but we, mm. we, we spent a lot of time mm. together and some yeah. of them... I had very strong views about some of them, yeah. I think we've got time for one more quick question. Uh, kia ora Toto. I am very interested in, the, in reading your book and particularly finding about the hidden women. Mm. Um, currently, with David Vert, most of you would know his name. Um, he's presented here. He wrote History of Toys in New Zealand. And he and I are uncovering and writing about Sir John Logan Campbell's only surviving child, Winifred. And I'd been interested in Winifred uh, for a very long time. And she has left hundreds of letters. Wonderful. Mm. And the, it interests me that these women's letters have not been picked up by the um, writers of Sir John Logan Campbell's life. Mm, mm. Um, well, I mean, if I could just speak to that briefly, not about my book, but um, there's a wonderful biography some of you may have, may have read by Stacey Schiff of Vera Nabokov. It's called Vera. Some, some people are nodding. You know, when... She told Brian Boyd, who was our star of the Bokoff studies, that she was going to write a book on Vera. He said, oh, nothing there. <laughs> and it is just a fantastic book. 
And yeah. that's such a great way to end because this is such a fantastic book as well. You actually need two two hands to hold this. <laughs> it's really weighty. And as you can see from the small selection of photographs and images there, it's full of absolutely wonderful images as well. It's a beautiful object and I would really recommend that you buy it and buy it for young women too as well as a copy for yourself. Thank you so much. We could talk for another hour, I'm sure. Thank you, Judith. Thank you, Barbara. Thanks for listening to Going West Audio. You can subscribe to the podcast and our regular updates at goingwestfest.co.nz.